when you watch the movies that come out um, on The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, what's your take? Like, do you enjoy those movies? Do you feel like, well, you know, as a movie, it's fine. And just, you know, this, this is this is what I thought the this is this is how I saw the book. You know, you read a book, see a movie, see a movie, then read the book. Obviously, you read the book first. What's your take on his the movies of the books? Well, my my take is quite different from people who have you know hadn't hadn't read the books first. So there's an awful lot of people who who came to the books after the movies, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and you can see actually from uh, you, you look online or in in fanzines, you can see that when people do fan art, so often these days um, influenced by the faces of the actors in the movies. Um, I find that rather sad. Um, and in fact, so does Peter Jackson, because he told me so. <laughs> um, I had a good 25 years of stuff going up in here, imagining how things would look. So the movies, for me, succeeded as far as they matched my own preconceptions and failed as far as they did not. Um, and that's more true. The failure is more true of the Hobbit uh, movies than the Lord of the Rings movies. I think the Lord of the Rings movies are fine works of art, um, regardless of my own issues with them. Um, I can see why they work so well for other people. And there are stretches of them that I think are wonderful. Um, and I've, I've been able to watch them with my daughter, um, which has been pretty special too. So that's made her interested enough so that we're reading Lord of the Rings. Did, did she read first or she saw them? No, she didn't. No, no, no. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good way in for, for, for right. many people. Um, um, yeah. um, th this question again is, is just a little, little different maybe. How would you compare, um, and, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious here actually, how, how would you compare Tolkien's works to, you know, what the kids, you know, Harry Potter today, you know, I mean, you know, you see kids, uh, my kids, they're one, two, three, four, five, and they, like, they devour it. I, I'm not even sure if they're reading it because they do it so quickly. I mean, can, can, can you, I mean, is it, is there a comparison at all in terms of genre or, you know, depth of, of, of the, of these works? Oh, J.K. Rowley is a, 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 an amazing author. I mean, I, I, have, I have to admit, I have not read all the Harry Potter books because I got bogged down when they start becoming as fat as Lord of the Rings, nearly. Um, and because I'm, I have read other books about wizard schools that are, are more to my taste, older ones. Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea was my uh, wizard school book when I was young. Um, but she, you know, she's done this astonishing thing of managing to tie up, you know, the, the, the school story genre with fantasy and with detective stories. Because a lot of these, the, these plots unfold just like detective stories. They're, they're, they're wonderful bits of clockwork. Um, I don't think it's easy to make a comparison at all, really. Um, I, I can see from the uh, Harry Potter movies, because I have managed to make it through all of those, that they do gain in seriousness gravity um, towards the end um, in a way that Lord of the Rings does. 
Um, so you know that's that's interesting and um, valuable. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't knock them. And I think although kids may read them fast, um, they may well reread them and reconsider them, and that kind of stuff can go very deep. And I you know I speak from experience. Look at me. What what was it like to be? Yeah, this, what was it like to be a student um, of Tolkien at Oxford? You know, his works have come out. I, I assume they're gaining popularity. People are reading them. And now he's also your lecturer in linguistics, in, you know, different kinds of subjects. Like, it, you know, you know it's like, almost like having, you know, a, a, I don't know, a rock star being your lecturer, you know, in university. Well- I'm not old enough to be able to speak to that question because right. I, okay. <laughs> Tolkien died in 1973 and I didn't get okay. to Oxford until 1985. Okay. Um, I gather that he was, you know, there, there are mixed reports of his lecturing and I think it probably depended on um, uh, how expert you were in the languages he was lecturing about because his, unfortunately, his enunciation was flawed, especially once he got false teeth. Um so he could often be an indistinct speaker, um, which is a pity because he was also a natural performer. Um, and uh, so th- there's a story that when he was at school himself uh, and his hobby was learning this medieval Germanic language called Gothic, um, he spoke in Gothic in a debate that was meant to be conducted in Latin. Right. That's the kind of school he went to. Um, uh, and you can see there this this urge to perform. There's this wonderful story that I heard from someone who did know Tolkien, a young fan of The Hobbit who struck up a correspondence with Tolkien um, that was so strong that, that Tolkien came and visited the family uh, in Cambridge um, once. And this kid, his name, he became a historian, he died last year, sadly, um, not the year before, Hugh Brogan, um, this this Hugh uh, hid in the garden at first because he was so shy. Um, but when he was finally persuaded back into the house to join the family and talking to Tolkien, Tolkien performed his party trick. They had a wonderful staircase. He went to the top of the staircase and he fell down, arms and legs flying all over the place. And then he got up just like that. Ta-da. Tolkien was a performer at heart, you know, and that, and that I think is why his works are so thoroughly worked. Um, why it's so hard to find chinks and flaws in their internal logic, you know. Um, yeah. You, you've obviously touched upon this, but um, the main conclusion, if possible, of your new book, what, what, what conclusions did you come um, in the new book, uh, The Places That Inspired Middle-earth? Well, you know, very, very simply, of course, England was very important, but then so so it turns out were other parts of Britain. There was this, this, this dialogue going on in Tolkien's head between the, the main cultural heritages of the British Isles, you know, Celtic and Anglo-Saxon. And this is reflected in, in complex ways in, in, within his mythology, like between the hobbits in particular in the Shire and the elves who live off to the west by the sea. You know. um, <clears throat> but it's not something that you should uh, 
take as being, you know, the, the end all of this is how you must interpret Tolkien. It's more interesting to look at the evolution of this. And that's something that I, I spend a chapter mapping out just that one kind of dialogue between Celtic and Anglo-Saxon. Um, I thought that the topic of places that inspired Tolkien was a bit trivial. It was actually suggested to me by a friend um, who, who introduced me to her publisher, who's ended up publishing the book, Francis Lincoln. Um, when I, I got into it, I realised it wasn't trivial and it was really fascinating. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a deep importance of place. Um, there are wider influences than even Tolkien acknowledged. So, you know, he tended to valorise northernness, of course, you know, his, his own field, Old Norse, Anglo-Saxon influences. But he had also had a very uh, developed classical education. So there's all kinds of influences from Greek and Roman uh, literature and myth. Um, and then further afield, um, I found uh, influence of... of um, the culture of, of Mesopotamia, right? I also think this is something that didn't go into the book. I, I think some of Tolkien's sound aesthetic in, um, particularly in, in the language of the grey elves, Sindarin, which he consciously modelled on Welsh, a lot of those place names in particular actually look like they, they could come out of what Tolkien would have called the Old Testament. Um, But the fundamental thing for me is just, just the sheer interest in tracing creative processes. They're a story in themselves. So with Tolkien, we have an author who's in a, a fairly unique position where his son, Christopher, who died last, last year, um, did an incredible amount of work in publishing things that his father had left unfinished. So first of all, he published the Silmarillion and created by just almost entirely just by editing things his father had written together, a co coherent book of legends called the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to show us how that had developed. And he did so in a series of 12 books called the History of Middle Earth. Um, and it's an amazing treasure trove for anyone who's interested, not just in Middle Earth, but in how a writer's imagination works and develops. And that's, it's a boon for, 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 for me um, in, in looking at how places influence Tolkien. Not because Christopher Tolkien's history of Middle-earth really says very much about Tolkien's outside influences, but because it allows you to trace what Tolkien was creating at any given point. And when you know anything about his what he was doing at the time, you can start to see the connections. Um, so one of the one of the points I make that when he wrote his very first Middle Earth piece of writing, it's a poem about a mariner called Erendel who sails off the western edge of the world and becomes the evening star. Um, Tolkien had just been on a holiday to Cornwall. And I discovered by using a, this wonderful piece of astronomy software called Stellarium that you could actually, from the tip of Cornwall where he was staying on the, the, those evenings, 
Venus, the evening star, was very prominent due west at sunset, you know. Um, and who wouldn't go and stand on the clifftop and look out over the sea and watch this thing, this this wonderful phenomenon? So, um, but the the process is there's it's it's always an evolution with Tolkien. So you see replacement and rearrangement. You see this sort of tenuous endurance of influence as well. So um, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien started in the 1930s and finished in the 1950s, Frodo sails off to the lonely Isle of the Elves, right? Frodo's from a place that's very much like England. The lonely Isle of the Elves is somewhere off to the West. But when Tolkien first began his mythology, he invented the Lonely Isle as England, kind of prehistoric elven England, right? So he completely uprooted that idea, got rid of it, reconfigured everything over the years. Um, and this is the way it goes. There's always a shifting around of signs and signifieds and whatever, um, if we're going to be theoretical about it. Um, I found traces of uh, Warwick, which was very important to Tolkien because his fiancée Edith lived there, um, ultimately in Lothlorien, the elven kingdom in The Lord of the Rings. But it, it gets there by a whole series of substitutions. Do you think um, 50 years, um, coming up, I guess, to 50 years um, from Tolkien's death, is that where we are right now? Um, he, yeah. Wait, yeah. Do you think he would be surprised um, at the continued popularity of his works? I, I think he was always surprised at the popularity okay. of his works. Okay. From start to finish, yeah. He, he was a modest person. I mean, is that a sign of his modesty? I mean, it just, you know, that lack of arrogance, modest. In again, again I, think, I think it's more complicated than that. I think he had a okay. deep, okay. deep self-belief. Um, and a deep sense of his own flaws, um, you know, and arrogance and humility. I mean, this isn't unusual, really. People are like that. You poke, poke someone who appears arrogant and re realise actually they're, they're, they're really brittle and nervous underneath. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes the most humble people can actually have a great deal of confidence. Right. Um, the connection between Tolkien's depiction of the dwarfs and this idea of connecting a dwarf to Jews. Is this something that you believe is, has relevance, has credence? Um, how, how do you view that? Is it real? Um, well, Tolkien made the comparison himself. Um, so he, he said in a, in, a, in a letter in 1955, I do think of the dwarves like Jews, at once native and alien in their habitations, speaking the languages of the country, but with an accent due to their own private tongue. So he's thinking about Jews in Europe. Um, but he's thinking specifically about language. And of course he would, because mm -hmm. that was his thing. He did he modeled the language of the dwarves, Huzdul, um, on Semitic languages, including Hebrew, because it has uh, triconsonantal roots. Historically, uh, words go back to three letter roots, three consonants. 
and some of the words sound like Hebrew. Right? So Baruch means axes in Dwarvish, and it means what, blessed in Hebrew. Right? Um, he may have had other reasons for comparing them to Jews. Um, he did mention in one BBC interview in 1964 um, that like the Jews, they have a tremendous love of artifact and a warlike capacity. So this kind of thing yeah, it deserves scrutiny. Um, but it also needs to be seen in context, I believe, because otherwise, um, if we just decide, we, you know, we, we, we kind of put dead authors on trial for their attitudes. Right. Um, it seems to me to be a somewhat vain exercise and we're more concerned with, with our own morality now than with understanding how morality evolves, how attitudes change and so on. Times, attitudes do change and will continue to do so, right? So we shouldn't really sit on our laurels now thinking we are uh, as good as we're ever going to be, right? Um, and my research into place influences, as I've said, shows how pinning Tolkien's influences down is, is, a, is, is not so easy. You know, there's all kinds of complexities going on. Um, we do know that in 1938, The Hobbit was going to be published in German. And Tolkien's publisher in Britain sent him a letter from the German publisher, which asked for a declaration that he uh, was of pure Aryan extraction. And this is now quite a famous response. Um, Tolkien wrote to his own publisher, do I suffer this impertinence because of the possession of a German name or do their lunatic laws require a certificate of Arish Aryan origin from all persons of all countries? Personally, I should be inclined to let a German translation go hang. In any case, I should object strongly to any such declaration appearing in print. I do not regard the probable absence of all Jewish blood in himself as necessarily honourable, and I have many Jewish friends and should regret giving any colour to the notion that I subscribe to the wholly pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. So at that point, you know, he was quite clear on what the Nazis were about. Um, at, at that that's, that's 38. We're talking about 38. Yeah. Before, yeah. July. Before, yeah. before the war. Before the, before the war. Um, and I think before Kristallnacht as well, I believe. No, that, that was November 38? Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason for his uh, awareness, actually, was that Oxford was already, since 1933, a refuge for Jewish academics. Right. That's why he had many Jewish friends. I doubt that he had many Jewish friends prior to that. Um, and it may well be that Tolkien's attitudes evolved and changed over his lifetime. Um, the, and, and his dwarves too, his, his depiction of dwarves changed throughout his life too. So, mm -hmm. so it's very hard to pin those down. It's a complex so, subject. So, so a, lot, a lot of it though is, is based on language and linguistics as opposed to um, pinning them as character stereo stereotype characters where right 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're seeing it from the linguistical point of view. And, it, and it's, a, it's a late life thing too. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, late in life, he came up with this, this sort of subgroup of dwarves called the Petty Dwarves. And this was at a stage where Tolkien was becoming interested in a way that he had not once been in the, uh, in what we might call, you know, race prejudice. And it's, it's, it's rights and wrongs, it's wrongfulness. And um, so the Petty Dwarves are, are a, a, a race who are, um, stigmatized and persecuted and even hunted by everyone else um and so you know you might think ah so this is tolkien thinking about jews but we don't know that you know it might just be part of a, a wider interest which uh starts to show in the lord of the rings i think um in the problem of you know, people being stigmatised uh, because of just the viewer's perspective. So in The Lord of the Rings, there's this wonderful scene where uh, Sam Gamgee, the Hobbit, sees a battle involving the men of the Deep South, the kind of quasi-Africans. Um, one of them is uh, falls dead on the road beside Sam, and he looks at him and he thinks, he could be me. You know, he's come a long way. He's far from home. He's taking part in a war he doesn't understand. You know, so yeah, um, Lord of the Rings with its with its multiple viewpoints, um, different cultures, different races, all uh, in dialogue with each other. I think brought out of Tolkien an interest in in that problem of you know how how races treat each other. Um, this, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm sure this is the, the tip of the tip of the tip of an iceberg. This is, right. but, but you know, I just wanted to give our audience and followers a, a taste um, of Tolkien. And again, um, thank you very, very much for for the interview. And um, again, the books Tolkien and the Great War, Tolkien the Places that Inspired Middle Earth, um, go on to Amazon and purchase it there, um, you know, great books to read, lots of fun. And again, thank you very, very much for today's interview. Well, thank you, Ari. Good to meet you.